What up, all you beautiful misfits and rejects out there? Thank you for joining me for episode 207 of Misfits and Rejects. In today's episode, I spoke with Kat Kokolet from catcoke.com. Kat is an online entrepreneur who licenses her artwork to big companies like Urban Outfitters or Target or whatever it may be. And I brought her on because not only is her story very inspirational, it is something that I aspire to become, somebody who develops an online business that is sustainable for my lifestyle, as well as those I love the most. Kat lives six months in Thailand, then she moves to Bali for a few months, and then she moves to Europe for the rest of the time. And again, just hearing her story really inspires me to keep pushing as I continue to try to develop my online ideas, my online entrepreneurship skills. And every individual I bring on this podcast really just helps me stay focused and motivated as I venture through all the peaks and valleys that entrepreneurship is. And there's one individual I really want to inspire with this episode. Her name is Ryder Biolas. You might remember her from episode 142. She's a young 14-year-old artist as well. And I just wanted to really just show through Kat's story what's possible when you find that thing that you love to do in your life. And then trying to figure out a way to monetize it is sometimes very difficult for many of us, especially artists out there. You always hear the struggling artist story. Well, I think Kat's a great example of somebody who took her passion, took the thing that she really wanted to do, and turned it into a very viable business, a viable way of making incredible money that then she can go do the things she wants with her life, designing that life that she's always dreamed of. And as you'll hear throughout the story, like I said, she's constantly living in cool places with a lot of cool people. So I have no doubt you'll get super inspired by her story as I did. If you're a first time listener, please pull out that phone, hit subscribe. If you are a listener and have been a listener, one thing that really helps me within the algorithms of iTunes, Apple, Spotify, for other people to find me is if you rate and leave a comment. For whatever reason, that's what the algorithm likes to see. So for Misfits and Rejects get found a lot easier. If you wouldn't mind after this episode, or even before, just rating Misfits and Rejects. We always appreciate five stars. Leaving a comment. And if you feel so inclined and you think Kat's story is super cool and you think somebody in your life who's an aspiring artist or a really talented artist who is just waiting for their big break, share it with them. Share her story, get them inspired, and give them the opportunity to see like, hey, maybe I can license my art out as well. The one great thing about Kat and her story is she teaches how she does all this. On her website, catcoke.com, C-A-T-C-O-Q.com, where she divulges everything. I'll take you by the hand and show you exactly how to take your artwork, put it online, and get companies to pay you for it. So thank you so much for joining us today. If you're a first-time listener, please remember to hit that subscribe button. And just everybody who's returning and continuously comes back for each week, I want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Your love and support means the world to me. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode with Kat Coquelette from catcoke.com. Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today, I'm joined by Kat Kokolet from catcoke.com. Kat, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I, uh... I hit that Facebook message up to you quite a while ago, and it sounds like you're not really a Facebooker. 
<laughs> I am pretty terrible at responding back to messages. Um, here's a here's a trick though. If you want me to respond, you just have to say "cat nine one one read this," and I'll 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 see it. That's like paging days when I used to like have a page on my hip and people like hit me up nine one one nine one one. I I I've never been really good at the lingo thing, so I'd always take it seriously. I'd be on the freeway, I'd like pull off the four hundred five in California, get to a payphone. Back in the day, we had to use quarters, and they'd be like, "Oh, I just wanted you to call me back." It was so annoying. <laughs> My last 911 was from my roommate and it was 911 cat where is the parmesan cheese so I totally get it That's so funny I mean are you of that era like did you grow up with pagers I did not grow up with pagers. Uh, I'm 32. No, I'm 33. My birthday was a few weeks ago. Um, Miss the pager thing. It's just uh, responding back to messages. Terrible. Emails, much better. But Facebook messages, a lot of those I just miss. That's cool. Are you into social media? I mean, you must be for what you do with your art, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. My Instagram page is it's a professional page. It's not a personal page. So it's a lot of artwork, process shots, um, photos of the inspiration that inspires my designs and artwork. So yeah, lots and lots of posting on Instagram. This is rad. And like I told you pre-show, like you gave an incredible speech at uh, DCBKK this last year in Bangkok, which just inspired the heck out of me and just instantly made me think of a past guest, Ryder Biolas, episode 142, who's 14, who's into art, I think has the skills and entrepreneurial mindset to really if she wanted to. So maybe let's start a little bit about where you're from originally. I'm from Kansas City. So I grew up in the Midwest, uh, went to school in, in the Midwest College, University of Kansas, and I actually worked in Kansas City for about four years before I started my digital nomad life. I worked as an arts director at a design firm in Kansas City. So we did branding and photo shoots, logos, web design, all that stuff. So yeah, did that for about four years. That's what I went to school for. It's what I always thought I wanted my career to be. But yeah, about uh, towards the end of that career, I realized that what really interested me was surface design and art licensing. So I made that pivot when I was in my late 20s, quit my job, started my own business and moved to the other side of the world. I moved to Chiang Mai, Thailand to really get my business off the ground. What was that moment where you decided to make that decision to have such a drastic change in your life's direction? You know, a lot of it was was boredom. I I was bored living in Kansas City. I was bored living in that same apartment. I was bored doing logos, um, and I really wanted a change. And so for me, it wasn't just enough to change my entire career and start uh, start my own company. But I wanted to just, you know, why not just go full speed with that and change my entire life? It felt like a really nice, fresh start to get my business off the ground. And, you know, Chiang Mai was calling. I'd already been through Chiang Mai. I'd backpacked through um, Southeast Asia. But I knew Chiang Mai had this digital nomad um, scene, this big hotspot for people that were doing what I was doing, which was getting their businesses started. And I wanted to be part of that community. So I, yeah, I moved to Thailand. I didn't know anyone there, but I was pretty confident that with such a huge digital nomad community, I'd be able to make friends pretty quickly. And I, I definitely did. So I, I found my scene, you know, um, people, not necessarily artists, but I met a lot of people that were starting businesses in the tech world. They were doing products that they were sourcing out of China, a lot of programmers, copywriters. So it was a lot of people that had those same passions that I did, which was a passion for autonomy, starting a business and, you know, living life on their own terms. That's so cool. Let's get granular on this because I'd like the audience to really understand the steps you took to break free, which is, I mean, obviously you've been to Chiang Mai, you knew the scene a little bit uh, and you 
you understood the nature of what traveling takes. So you had what a booked an Airbnb prior to landing or did you land and just find a place when you landed? I joined the uh, digital nomad girls Chiang Mai Facebook group and I saw someone posting that they were looking for a roommate around the time that I was planning on flying in. So I messaged her, we set up a Skype call um, she decided I was normal and I decided she was normal. And so when I landed, I was able to move into this house full of, there were four of us, five of us all together. We were all digital nomads and running our own companies. So, you know, I just started headfirst right into that scene. Did you have a plan with your company at this point or was it already, um, were you already kind of creating stuff already for it? You know, I, I had a, about a few years head start, actually, I was building up my company on the side while I worked a full-time job. So by the time I quit, um, I was actually in a pretty comfortable spot in terms of knowing that I had this business that was, you know, financially viable. I was, I was going to make money and be able to support myself with it. I had a few licensing partners under my belt by the time I left. So yeah, I really, I, I had that head start, which made things a lot more comfortable in terms of, you know, it wasn't just starting the business at that point. It was really optimizing it, which was a good place for me to be in when I got to Chiang Mai. This is cool. Can we talk a little bit about licensing and what drew you to that aspect of the business side of what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So I got started with licensing. It was, you know, it, was, it wasn't even intentional. I was doing licensing before I even knew that that's what it was called. Um, so I'll explain that a little bit. I was um, painting on the side, watercolor paintings of, you know, flowers and animals and food and insects. And I started scanning those paintings in to my computer and then uploading those files to a website called Society6. And what Society6 does is it's open source. Artists and designers from around the world can upload their designs. And then Society6 will turn those designs into their products that they sell to their customers. And then I receive a royalty. Um, it's usually about 10% from each product sold. So a $30 phone case is going to earn me $3. So I started uploading um, yeah, these designs to this website. And... I got in, honestly, it was, it was perfect timing because the site was, it was prominent, but they weren't overly saturated with artists at this point. This was back in 2014. So yeah, I started uploading my designs there. People began buying them and it really just blew up within about three months. I was making enough on that site month by month to pay my rent. So yeah, that was my first foray into art licensing. And from there, um, it really just kind of grew. I worked with other print-on-demand companies with a similar business model as Society6. I really just took a shotgun approach to it. I was like, well, if I'm making this much with this one website, why not find every similar website out there and then also sell my designs through them? And I became pretty popular on other websites as well. And um, because these websites have great SEO, my work was popping up um, really high in Google image results. So bigger companies began taking notes. And that's really how I got an in with bigger companies like Urban Outfitters. That's so cool. So it sounds like you got in at a time where you didn't have to learn all the algorithm, algorithms and hacks to really get your stuff seen. Is that kind of where people have to move to now to get their stuff noticed? It depends. So social media is a really powerful tool for artists. That's, that's really where my, where my traffic was driven from uh, to Society6 in the first place. I was posting these things on Society6 and driving my Instagram traffic over there, which triggered the Society6 algorithm, and they began promoting my work more internally on their site. So um, yeah, I think my recommendation for artists would be 
um, get your stuff out there, get it on social media, put it on your website, um, try to get a lot of traction out of it. The more places that your work can be seen, the more chances you have of getting that um, pulled by a big company. So yeah, big companies are using these middlemen to help find what they need to fulfill any kind of ad something. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I've got um, God about 42, maybe 50 at this point, art prints available through Target. And a lot of those were sourced by um, them finding me on Society6, which fed into a larger company, Deny Designs. Um, yeah, and so that, that originally happened because I had my artwork on Society6. Um, it was noticed, and now it's, now it's available on Target. It's awesome, dude. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. With the amount of success that you've had within some on certain sites, have you ever had someone reach out to you and say you're like our top seller? Yeah, I'm actually um, in that top percent with Society6. I'm also a Skillshare teacher, and that's been really beneficial for me as well because I've been able to teach other students how to do exactly what I'm doing. You know, the more the merrier here. It's it's not you know a small chunk of this pie getting taken away if I invite more. Um, artists into the space. It's just making this pie bigger for all of us. Yeah. So knowing that I'm one of those top artists on Society6 has also really helped propel my work forward with other brands. So cool. So yeah, let's talk a little bit about your Skillshare classes because I saw it on your site, which was really intriguing to me. Um, You do what with them exactly? So I upload these classes to a platform called Skillshare. And most of my classes are creative entrepreneurial skills or just straight up creative skills like learning how to paint with watercolor or acrylic. Um, I have some technical classes like learning how to use Photoshop in the exact way that I do it. Like if you're an analog artist and you paint or you draw and you want to digitize that artwork to be able to sell online or license to other retailers, um, learning how to digitize your work is absolutely crucial. So I have a whole class teaching other artists how to do that so that they can, you know, enter into the space, get involved with licensing and print on demand and start earning an income for this for themselves as well. What kind of equipment do you need to create a class like that and upload it? Oh, man. Some of my first classes are, I mean, they're pretty rough. I mean, the, the information is great, but the the audio and the video, you know, I was kind of, it was a learning curve for me. I was figuring it out. Um, now I do my classes. I film everything with my MacBook Pro. Um, I bought a nice fancy mic for, you know, a hundred bucks off Amazon. And those are the two tools I use to put my classes together. I edit everything myself upload my courses. Um, Each of my courses is broken down into short videos. And each video is, you know, a couple minutes, maybe five minutes teaching these small chunks um, of things that you can learn throughout the class. So maybe one chunk is just focused on um, how to optimize your Instagram for more people to get your eyes on your artwork. Maybe another little video is how to use hashtags appropriately for the same results and outcome. But they're all kind of packaged together in these classes that are between, you know, 30 minutes or an hour. So they're pretty digestible um, to get kind of get in there, learn a little bit about art design, um, art licensing, um, how to create products and designs that will become top sellers by tracking trends, you know, the, the whole gamut. It's all the tools I use. I've just kind of repurposed into classes for my students. And then what would that cost for someone to purchase? Oh, Skillshare is a, it's a membership site. So I think it's around 30 bucks a month, maybe. It may, it may have cut down um, during COVID to a cheaper price. But um, yeah, I usually offer links on social media so all my students can watch all my classes for free because Skillshare is really generous with their free trials. So you can sign up for a free trial, get two free months where you can watch all the courses on the platform. And that's usually what I recommend my students to do. Um, that way they don't have to pay anything. They can watch my classes and, and really learn that knowledge. So then 
what portion of that do you get paid that 30 bucks a month? Oh, I get paid uh, based off of minutes watched. So the way that uh, the Skillshare platform works, they do a profit share. So they divide all their minutes watched um, amongst all the teachers. So say I had, you know, a 50th of all minutes watched on the entire platform, then I would get one 50th of the profits for that month. Really cool. What part of what you do do you enjoy the most? Because you have your fingers in a lot of different pies and there's a lot of moving parts, it sounds like, that you kind of have to always keep up with, be aware of. Like, What part of this do you enjoy the most? Mm, if I want, uh, in terms of a meditative, calm, relaxing, enjoyable experience, it's definitely painting and creating artwork. Um, you know, there's there's no better feeling than just kind of sitting down with a cup of tea, getting out my watercolor sets and painting. I, I've always been doing that. I really enjoy it. Um, but then in terms of my competitiveness and feeling those big wins, I love final signing on a contract and landing a new big client, um, whether it's, you know, Nordstrom or Target, like I mentioned before, um, Home Goods. I really, really like landing those clients. They always feel like big wins to me, especially if it's uh, a brand that I really aspire and look up to and want that brand association with. Can you name a brand that you really look up to? Anthropology. Yeah, I've um that's my that's my white whale client. I'd really like to get some work in anthropology. Um I think that uh my style aligns really well with their audience and for me that would be a big win. Aren't they owned by Urban Outfitters? Yeah, so I've got stuff in Urban, so I'm so close, but uh not quite there yet. Are you pitching to them or are you they just coming to you and you're waiting? Oh, they approached me. So you know, I've tried the outreach, but I, I'm just terrible at it. Uh, those cold calls, none of them ever really turned in anything. But where I found all of my success with getting new partners for licensing was just being available and having my work out there and having my contact info really available. And they find me, they email me, and, you know, we get the ball rolling from there. But yeah, the outreach side of things has been a big struggle for me. But um, about two years ago, I hired an agency to represent me. And that kind of solved that problem with my brand. You know, I'd been working for four years without representation. And um, all the work I was getting were, were people that were finding me. But my outreach was, you know, absolutely zero. So hiring an agency now um, has been really beneficial in landing those new clients. And in a more in a more proactive approach. Can you take us through the, the contracts that are sent to you and how, what's it called? Did you redline it yourself? Yeah. Yeah. Um, now I don't have to because I hired an agency, but what I did before I had agents representing me was, yeah, I would go through those contracts on my own and look for certain keywords. I wanted to make sure that all the contracts I was signing were non-exclusive, which means um, I could sell that same artwork through other companies. If you sign an exclusive contract, um, whatever artwork you're sending to that company, they they get that. They don't own the IP or the copyright, but they do have the exclusivity. So that's a big thing I always look for in my contracts is making sure they're non-exclusive. Or if they are exclusive, I'm, I'm willingly going into that and understanding that, okay, this is a really big client. They're going to make me a lot of money. It's worth it to do the exclusivity um, never permanent. It's always, you know, two, maybe five years, but that's probably the biggest red flag I look for in contracts. Because for me, um, again, I do that shotgun approach with my artwork where I have that same piece available through a ton of different brands and companies and websites. You said something at DCBKK. I hope you don't mind maybe reiterating for the audience and writer, like how you negotiate certain terms for your contracts. I remember just being so fascinated by the way you thought about that and things that you would offer that you didn't re didn't really matter to you. Do you mind going through that again? 
Yeah, my bargaining chips. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, when I go into contract negotiations, um, what happens is they send me a contract and I read through it, review it, mark out a few things that might be a problem. And then when I come back to them, I'm like, okay, um, here's the contract. We need to remove these clauses. But in addition to a royalty rate, which by this, by the way, you offered five, I really need 15. I also want, and then I give this big list of other things that I want. Like, um, you've got to give me, you know, 15 social media shout outs on Instagram and Facebook within the first month of, um, assigning the contract. I want homepage presence with my products on your website for at least six months. Um, I want my products to be featured in your email list um, if you've got a really big email list. And I just kind of go through and I give all these ones, right? But usually of that entire list, there's usually only a couple of things I really care about. The rest, it's like, you know, take it or leave it. It'd be great to have it. But what it really offers me is a bargaining chip for uh, something I'm willing to lose where it looks like, you know, we're meeting in the middle a little bit. So they'll be like, oh, well, we can't give you 30 social media shout outs, but we can raise that royalty percentage, you know, an extra 5%, which that means way more to me than the social media call outs. So it really just gives me an opportunity to, um, yeah, have a, have a better positioning when we're going into that bargaining table, you know, like I'll have, um, all of my needs on my end and they'll have all of theirs on, on their end. And, by, you know, having these bargaining chips that I can afford to lose, it always nets me out in a much better place. Has it ever backfired on you where they give you all the things you don't care about, but won't give you the things you actually want? <laughs> that does happen from time to time. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's not that I don't care about the social media shout outs. It's just that, you know, sometimes a royalty percentage, you know, I, I'll, I'll take that. That's, you know, that's more money in my pocket. So it's, uh, you know, I've never not gotten everything. Like I, I always get some of the things I ask for, but, um, yeah, I've never signed a contract where I haven't been happy with where we've netted out. If we net out in a terrible place, then, you know, sayonara that, that contract is, you know, not going to happen. Yeah. What, like how many times do you have to go back and forth with these companies at, at different points? It depends. Um, sometimes it's, I always prefer to do calls over emails, um, you know, face to face video calls, because I help it. I think it helps uh, those companies see me as a person. And, um, you know, I'm a I'm a pretty nice person. And uh, it's hard to say it's hard to say no when you're face to face, whereas in an email, it's a little bit more impersonal. So I like having these conversations um, as face to face as we can get. You know, I travel around full time. So it's always video calls. I'm never in the same city as any of my clients. But um yeah, it's, uh, it's so far it's worked out pretty well, but yeah. And then when I signed on with that agency, I was able to kind of give them the list of what I look for in contracts and now they can relay that and they do that negotiating on my behalf. Um, so it's worked out very well. It's, you know, being able to outsource my negotiations have uh, freed up a lot of time on my end, but, uh, yeah, it's been pretty nice. Yeah. Speaking of the agency, I'd like to dive into that a little bit more because, for me, I instantly go on the defense of being like, they're going to take way too much and you're going to lose control. Have you felt any of that with the agency that you've taken on as a team member? Oh, those were my two biggest concerns before I signed on with them. You know, I'd been running a successful company for four years and part of me felt like, you know, I've done all of this on my own so far. Why, why do I need to hire someone to do it for me? Um, but ultimately, you know, what it comes down to is, I'm, I'm good at certain things in my business and some things I'm very good at. Like I'm very good at creating designs that are going to sell very well. Um, but you know, like I mentioned before, I'm not really that great at outreach. So in my mind, 
hiring this agency, they were going to be taking care of the things that I was either just plain bad at or had no interest in doing. So yeah, writing original contracts, um, those negotiations, you know, they're fun. They're definitely fun, but they're kind of, I mean, they're time consuming. So having someone do that for me and do all that outreach and, you know, they're the professionals, they're able to come to me and be like, hey, Kat, we're seeing a lot of interest in, let's say, citrus designs. And if you just create a lot of citrus this month, we'll be able to sell it and like get it in with uh, these big companies. So it's nice having someone where, you know, they've got my back and I've got their back and it feels more like a team than anything else. It's awesome. Do you think that the things you're naturally drawn to, like paint, watercolors, is naturally what the market always wants? Or have you had to adjust your kind of artistic desires to fit the market? There's been a lot of adjustments. Um, Within the mediums themselves, you can, there's a lot of flexibility. So I've always painted with watercolors. It's kind of the bread and butter of my illustration portfolio. And watercolors definitely um, have had a heyday, you know, back in 2010-ish, you saw watercolor florals, um, you know, surrounding these beautiful calligraphy quotes. I mean, that those kinds of motifs were everywhere. So yeah, I absolutely cashed in on that. I created a lot of artwork of, you know, quotes done in beautiful calligraphy with watercolor flowers, and they did really well at the time. Now, those motifs, they're, they're not they're not as popular. You know, there's other things that I've kind of focused on um, and adapted with the trends. But in terms of painting medium in general, uh, yeah, there's a lot of flexibility there. So you can stick with your same medium if you want to and just kind of adapt to the trends in the market that way. So as long as you're doing watercolors, you will paint anything and you're happy, it sounds like. Oh, absolutely. Anything like human figures, animals, flowers, as long as just in the medium of watercolor, you're like just in bliss. Oh yeah. That's my wheelhouse. <laughs> I recently moved on to, um, I also do acrylic India ink. I draw from time to time, but yeah, watercolor is definitely my, my absolute favorite. But now I've started doing a lot more digital illustrations in, um, on my iPad with an Apple pencil. There's an app called procreate and they have so many great tools. It's really intuitive because you're holding that Apple um, pencil in your hand and, oh God, it's so much faster to do digital illustrations. So if, uh, yeah, I'm putting something together for a client and let's say they have a really quick turnaround and they need maybe 10 files and they want all this brand new artwork, I know I can whip that out digitally on my iPad um, and probably half the time it takes to hand paint something. What is it about the watercolors though that you find so relaxing and enjoyable to dive into? I think it's all the the color mixing. So when you paint with watercolors, you um, you have a lot of pigments and water on your brush. And as you're kind of painting along that paper, it's this really textured paper that this paint is soaking into. And it leaves these, um, these pools of water and pigment. So you can kind of dip into your palette, pick other colors and... Um, it's, it's not perfect. And that's what I like about it. You can kind of see what happens when that paint dries. It usually creates some sort of effect that you weren't uh, planning for or expecting. And that's what I really like about it. So that unexpected result is where you what you get off on. Oh, absolutely. All of that color blooming, the variation in pigmentation. Oh, I just love it. No, it's really interesting. I mean, like I'm, I like baking for some reason. Like that's what if I could just come home after work and just bake a loaf of bread for some reason, that's my jam. <laughs> but it's really cool that, I mean, baking bread makes no money. I had a bakery at one point and it's cool that what you love to do makes you money. And that's, I think a, a stroke of luck for one thing, you know, but at least it's something that you can stay focused on and probably never going to get sick of it. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, I feel incredibly fortunate that I've been able to make a living off of my passion and 
you know, one thing I was worried about at the beginning when I pivoted my career to focus on art licensing was, you know, if I make this my full-time job and, and I become reliant on this for an income, is that going to take the the fun out of it? You know, it's, um, I was afraid that, you know, maybe if this becomes too much of a stress, high pressure situation, like, okay, I've got to, got to keep earning money, got to keep painting, but it really hasn't been that way at all. It's, it's, I've still been able to kind of mentally separate, um, my watercolor paintings from my business in terms of, um, it doesn't feel like a chore. It doesn't feel like a thing I have to do. It's not like, okay, from, you know, nine 30 to two 30, I have to paint and then, you know, license those out. It's, uh, it's something that I still do when I feel like it, when the inspiration strikes and I feel incredibly fortunate in that. What do you do with all the watercolors? I mean, you're, you're a full-time traveler and you paint for a living. So you, what, where does all the art go? <laughs> I have never sold an original in my life. I don't. I, I don't even know how to do that. I wouldn't. I wouldn't even know how to price myself. Um, all of those originals usually get shipped back to my parents' house in Kansas and uh, stacked up in my old childhood bedroom. So I mean, at this point, it's it's thousands of paintings. So yeah, it's uh, it's quite a bit. That's so interesting. So you go home to visit your family and you can't sleep in your own bed because it's full of art. <laughs> there is so much crap in that bedroom. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I travel all over. I don't have a permanent home anywhere. The closest thing is probably Chiang Mai where I have an apartment, you know, five to six months out of the year. But even that, I mean, I pack up and put it in a storage garage when I leave Thailand. So yeah, all of my, all the stuff I collect on my travels, all that stuff just gets piled back at my parents' house and you know, if mom and dad, if you're listening to this, I will deal with that someday, just not right now. Yeah, let's go into your lifestyle and how it kind of unfolds because you're a full-time traveler, but you do hunker down in Thailand six months. Um, where do you go after Thailand? Um, after Thailand, I usually leave Thailand. Um, I live up north in Chiang Mai, so every February, March-ish, uh, it's, they do something called, it's called burning season. And you're familiar with this. You spend time in, in Thailand, but it's when they burn the rice fields. And because Chiang Mai is in this valley surrounded by mountains, all of this smoke really just settles in the city. And the breathing, I mean, the air quality is just atrocious. So I usually leave Thailand when the burning starts. So, you know, February usually is my, my time to leave. And February is too cold to go back to Kansas and visit my folks. It's too cold for most of Europe. So I usually end up going down to Bali for a few months uh, killing time until it gets warmer in the rest of the world where, uh, where I can travel. And then I spend my summers in Europe traveling around. Like proper backpacking? Or are you doing the same thing? You just hunker down and say like Lisbon? Yeah, exact same thing. So I'll rent an apartment for a month or two, sometimes three, um, use up all of my Schengen days. As an American, I can only be in the Schengen for uh, 90 straight days out of you know every 180. So use up all my Schengen days. Once those are blown, go back home, visit the folks. And uh, by that time, it's fall, head back to Chiang Mai and rinse and repeat, same cycle. How many years have you done this now? I'm on my fourth year. That's so cool. That's so cool. I mean, what an amazing story. Like, what do your parents think about your lifestyle? Are they proud of you? Do they miss you? They miss me a lot. Uh, when I first told them that I was going to be quitting my job and moving to Asia, they they were surprised. <laughs> um, yeah, but they I've I've had unconditional support from them. Um, they're like, well, you'll you'll make it work. And yeah, it's 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 been great. They've been very supportive. My whole family has. Um, yeah, friends and family were again, pretty surprised when I announced that I was just going to move to Asia with, um, no connections, no friends, just 
gonna I was just gonna see how it went. But um, yeah, as uh, as the years have gone on, and my family has seen how I've really you know, carved out this life for myself that makes me so fulfilled and so happy. Um, yeah, I, I think they're, I think they're pretty proud of me. What else makes you happy? Like what other kind of hobbies do you have? Oh man, I spend so much time just creating artwork. What other hobbies do I even have? Uh, I really like hiking. I like doing hiking trips around the world. Um, and that's something my family loves as well. So usually about once a year, uh, my mom and dad, sometimes my aunt will fly out to visit me wherever, wherever I'm living at the moment, whether it's Indonesia, Thailand, Vietnam, uh, and they'll join me for a couple of weeks and we'll usually do a hiking trip together. Um, and it's great in Asia because you can do these village to village stays. So when my parents met me up in northern Vietnam in Hanoi, we went to this region of Vietnam called Sapa and it's all of these gorgeous rice fields, um, all local farmers. And there's this group of women called the Sapa Sisters. And it's these Vietnamese women that speak English and they're tour guides for you for these hiking trips. So they'll take you out for a week to however long you want and you'll hike through these beautiful rice fields. You'll see water buffalo and you'll stay in villages overnight. So um, you'll have this this local guide translator and she'll you'll stay with families and they'll cook you dinner and you can kind of have these conversations through your guide. And it's a it's a really powerful and humbling and beautiful experience. So that's uh, that's definitely something I try to do at least once a year, usually with my parents when they come to visit. Um, yeah, it's it's a really, really wonderful experience. Yeah. Do they enjoy Southeast Asia as much as you do? They wouldn't want to live there, but uh, they like coming and visiting. They actually just visited me in Bali in February, right before uh, COVID hit. And yeah, they had a great time in Bali. We went up to Ubud. Um, we did day hikes. We didn't do any overnight hikes. Just it's it's way too hot. Um, you know, February, Bali, it's, you know, 98 degrees all day. But uh, yeah, it was it was great. We still got to do some day hikes and see those rice fields and learn a little bit about the local culture. Do you ever see yourself settling down in one of the spots that you frequent? You know, I'd like to someday, but I'm not quite ready for that yet. But yeah, one day I'd love to have um, a home somewhere that is my permanent home. Um, I wouldn't want to stay there permanently, maybe six months of the year and still have that flexibility to travel. But, you know, it would be really nice to have somewhere to put all my souvenirs that's not my childhood bedroom in Kansas. Absolutely. What places have you considered? I've considered Europe. So, yeah, I've looked into what it takes to purchase property in Europe. Does that buy me residency? Could I stay in the Schengen for longer? Um, you know, I'm not quite ready to pull the trigger yet, but eventually I would like to, um, yeah, I'd like to own a home somewhere in Europe. Are you at a point now that you could afford a home somewhere? Like, do you have that kind of income where you're like, you, you could be a homeowner in Europe or have multiple homes around the world? Yeah, it could. It could happen. It's just a matter of... Yes, talking with my financial advisor, getting a plan going, but yeah, the the revenue that art licensing and online teaching has has generated has been um, it's been pretty astronomical for me. I mean, um, yeah, I feel really fortunate in that. You know, within six months of me selling my artwork online, I was already earning more from my side hustle than I was at my full time job as a designer back in Kansas City. So, you know, that's one of the reasons I left that job is I saw I saw a ceiling in terms of income. Whereas with art licensing and entrepreneurship and all these different avenues that I can take my brand, it seemed, it seemed almost limitless. And yeah, that's been my experience so far is just, you know, testing out new avenues, new income streams, you know, some of them don't work out, but then some of them turn into, you know, not just a, a great income stream, but something I really love doing, like all of that online teaching. 
So cool. are we talking like six figures, seven figures? Do you mind talking a little bit more about that? Or yeah, it's uh, yeah, I'm in six figure salary right now with uh, art licensing coming in, and you know it's definitely going to take a hit with COVID. My uh, licensors and you know within the industry, it's it's being projected that you'll probably make half as much until until this virus gets contained. Which you know it's a big bummer, but it's not it's not the end of the world for me. It's something that I can uh, kind of adjust and and be fluid and, and work through. Who is your financial advisor? Like, is it like a, a friend of a friend or something like that? It's uh, through Ameriprise, so it's actually my. It's my. She's been my financial advisor since before I even had a, you know, started my own company. She was my financial advisor as soon as I graduated college and got a full time job. Um, yeah, she was actually my parents' financial advisor. She works for Ameriprise. She is in Kansas City, and more importantly, she will, you know, take calls at all hours of the day from me if I'm in Asia or wherever else in the world. To uh, get things settled, so yeah, she's she's a great resource for me. So even though you travel a lot, you stay in cool places and nice places with you know really cool people, you're not blowing your money on frivolous things. It sounds like. Oh no, yeah, I um, I have a paycheck. I I pay myself um, on salary for myself. I'm the only employee under Cat Coke LLC, so I I live with uh, the income coming in from my paycheck for what I pay myself, and then everything else that my company earns just uh, comes through in dividends, which. I make a habit to not even, I don't even touch that. I don't see it. I don't even know it's there. It goes straight into um, investments in my portfolio. So yeah, it's uh, it's frugal living, but that's that's completely fine. I mean, frugal to, to an extent, but um, that's actually pretty fine for me. I have roommates all the time. Uh, we travel together. My roommates also own their own companies. And um, yeah, it's, a, it's kind of a great lifestyle to live with people that are also running their businesses, really motivated to work hard. Um, if I have any questions, if I'm kind of hit a roadblock and there's something that I'm really having trouble with, I can um, ask one of my friends or roommates and usually that's something that they've dealt with before in their business as well and they can advise. Do you travel business class or coach? <laughs> uh, if I use my points, then I'll travel business, but everything else, I'm, I'm economy all the way. Okay. <laughs> I love it. I have a few more questions before I let you go. You know, with the the website I was checking out, catcoke.com, you have beautiful blogs as well. Do you write all those? I do. Yeah, I really enjoy writing. Um, yeah, my blog post is all, it's artist resources. So it's advice to other artists and creatives that want to maybe get their venture off the ground or learn even what art supplies I use. Um, some of my blog posts are experiences that I've had while traveling. I had a whole blog post and it was basically, I tracked how much I spent for a full, it was either a full week or a full month. It was a full week in Thailand. Um, you know, every bot spent and I made a full blog post about that just to show how cheap it is to live over in Thailand. Um, yeah, I just, I, I write in my blog really whatever inspires me. I talk about new collaborations with new clients, um, speaking events that are coming up. Um, whether it's, you know, I got to speak at DCBKK, like you mentioned in Bangkok, that was a, that was a really fun experience. Um, yeah, it's just a, a whole gamut of basically what's going on in my life and my business. Very cool. Very cool. If you could speak to writer right now, or if you could go back and think, to where you were at when you were 14 and give each one of them words of wisdom, what would you say? When I was getting started with art licensing, I was really afraid to put myself out there. I, um, I was kind of embarrassed about showing my, my watercolor paintings to the world, you know, it was something that I'd always just done privately for myself or, um, in school, you know, for, for class assignments, but I never, 
identified myself as an, as an artist. I identified myself as a designer, as an employee. And so that mindset shift was, was absolutely massive. Um, but I remember that, that first Instagram post where I, I showed my first painting, um, well, not my first painting, but the first one that the world was going to see. And it was incredibly intimidating. And I was like, Oh God, this isn't perfect enough. What am I doing? Um, God, my, I guess my best advice is just to get over it. Um, you are going to be your worst, you're, you are your own worst critic. And that is so true. And I'm so glad that I got over that. And I started putting myself out there because I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be at all where I am today, unless I took that first plunge and, you know, swallowed my fear and started showing the world my artwork. That's great advice, Kat. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, folks, check her out at catcoke.com. Thank you so much. Awesome, Kat. Thank you so much for joining me. I love your story. It really inspires the heck out of me. I will continue on with my online adventure, hopefully getting to a place where I can, too, live in these various places for longer periods of time on a little bit bigger budget than I always have, and keep rocking. You're awesome. So remember, if you're a first-time listener, please hit subscribe. If you wouldn't mind just heading down to the bottom of your podcast app, rating Misfits and Rejects five stars, leaving us a comment, and again, sharing this episode with somebody who might be struggling as an artist would just mean the world to me and Kat. We do appreciate it. It really helps me in the algorithms that be get found a lot easier by people seeking out this kind of message, this inspirational message of people taking responsibility for their life, going after what they want in life, and designing viable businesses online, really interesting, cool lifestyles around the world. Please help me get this message out there. It can't be done without your help. So rating, commenting, sharing means the world to me. Thank you so much. I think you all are so very beautiful. I'll see you next week's episode, Monday morning, 9 a.m. Take care. Ciao. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspire you to think about your life situation, where you're at, and possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out, spread your wings, and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.